Hi, this is, you are the studio audience for our online thing, so things are a little bit different here, but um, we were just, we just finished our series in Exodus last week, um, went through the entire book, and we are starting a series in the Psalms for the summer starting next week. We're going to cover eight different psalms. Uh, the psalms have about eight different genres or types of psalms, so that's why we have eight of them. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to that. And you'll get to hear, uh, as I take my summer break in August, you'll get to hear from some of the other pastors as well as we preach through psalms. Then later on, we'll be in First John in the fall, so excited for that as well. Um, but today we wanted to take a break to address a really important topic, and it's a topic that is always important. It's in the scriptures, uh, always relevant, but it's out there in a, in a significant way right now, and that's the issue of racial justice and mercy. Um, and we recognize that there are all sorts of voices that are out there on all different sides, um, and our job as believers is to follow Jesus in this. And we walk down the narrow way following Jesus, and we avoid the left and the right. Um, and there will be dangers on the left and the right in all these issues. And perhaps in our lifetime, more than ever in recent history, we as believers are going to have to learn to navigate and follow Jesus amidst a culture that is moving in all sorts of directions. Um, and so our desire as pastors is to serve you in that, to follow Jesus ourselves, to be faithful to the word, um, and to lead you together that we might follow. Um, and so we wanted to take time today to address this issue, to look at what Scripture says about it. And, and either any of our pastors here could have spoken on this topic, but we wanted to ask someone who had a little more experience working with multi-ethnic, multiracial congregations and, and in multiracial context. And we have a very good friend that I spoke with, Tim Shorey. So Tim has spoken here before. He's a pastor down now in uh, the Philly area, Risen Hope Church. He grew up in Merrimack, Mass. Um, Tim is, uh, is Anglo, a white guy, wonderful, faithful brother, faithful to the scripture. And God has led them to this church, to lead this church that is, is multi-ethnic. Um, uh, half the church is, is non-European non background. Um, and his team uh, is multiracial as well, his pastoral team. And Tim has done an excellent job of, in, in our view, navigating this important topic, being faithful to the scriptures, but also being a learner and, and being humble and trying to learn and understand what it looks like to follow Jesus. So we wanted to have Tim here, but we couldn't because of the pandemic. Um, and so what we did, this is unusual for us, uh, but what we did is we actually selected a teaching that he gave uh, recently at One Charleston. Now, One Charleston is an organization of churches and pastors uh, formed after the, the shootings in Charleston. So, so brothers, pastors, and sisters who were leaders in churches came together and decided uh, to work together in Christ's name to represent Jesus to that area um, in, a, in a significant way. And that's, of course, another story, all that went on and how the church responded is really amazing. So Tim was asked to speak there um, and brought this message that we believe as elders, we, we've watched the message and discussed it. We believe it will serve us well in kind of walking that way. And so um, I just encourage you to listen to Tim. Uh, he is a faithful brother in the word. Um, he has, through his life and his leadership, demonstrated these things he's talking about. Um, I think we can learn a lot and learn wisdom. And ultimately, we want to follow Jesus. 
Um, so let's take time to listen to Tim Shorey as he teaches from the scripture uh, on this important topic. May God bless it. We'll have some time af after he's done as well to think through and respond to God's word. Um, so let me pray actually and then we'll, we'll show the video. Lord, we ask you right now to help us to hear from you. We thank you for your word. Your word is fully sufficient to address us in these important areas. And we ask you to, to, to speak to us and address our hearts that we might follow you, Jesus, and represent you as a whole and as individuals. Um, so bless the hearing of your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As I begin, let me read from Matthew chapter 12. Jesus went on from there, there being a place of conversation where he had cared for and shown mercy to the hungry. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy, like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This, that is this healing, was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is God's word. In order to respect you and the time allotment that I have, I think I better stick to my notes or I'm going to get lost in all of this. I am humbled, very humbled to be here. I should be humbled to be here. What I'm about to say in my next sentence is not intended to be cute. Um, it's something I feel acutely. I am an old white guy. An old white guy who lived at a distance removed from places and people long affected by injustice. Despite my age, 60 years of age, I completely missed Dr. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement since at that time I was living in Japan as a missionary kid. 
I spent my youth in an all-white New England town with virtually no exposure to ethnic diversity or visible racial injustice, although one has to wonder what injustices happened in order to make that an all-white town. After college, I pastored in mostly white middle-class suburbs for 33 years, and for decades of my life, I could count on less than two hands the number of friends I had who were people of color. Yet, despite that distance and ignorance, somehow I was not totally indifferent to these matters, for the Lord began his race and justice awareness work in my own heart over 20 years ago, helping me in that awareness was Robert Cameron's book, The Last Pew on the Left, so named because it was in that back and off to the side dishonored place that he and his family were forced to sit in church during his childhood. The Last Pew is a stinging indictment of the sorry state of affairs that makes Sunday morning the most segregated time of the week, I contacted Robert Cameron, having finished his book, and asked if I could meet with him and talk with him, and we became friends before he passed into the presence of the Lord. But he made a difference in my life. I haven't forgotten one exchange I had with Robert. He had listened to a sermon I had preached in my all-white congregation, a sermon on racial empathy. And he contacted me and said, Tim, you keep preaching that and you're not going to have any friends in your church. And yet I was still so distant from real people who face these real sorrows, the sorrows of a racialized and racist world, the world in which we live, that neither those people nor their sorrows left any real transformative mark on my life. And the effect of my distance from people who were different from me, the effect that it had on me was a set of internalized, racialized perspectives and actual racist assumptions. Too many, too many for me to list now, though I have grieved them time and again. Yet in my spirit, I, I knew that these things mattered. And so somehow, for some reason, I taught on them, cared about them, though I realize now I was 95% ignorant and unaware. A few years ago, I moved to Eastern Delaware County, PA, uh, to Upper Darby, Drexel Hill, a community that sits literally on the doorstep of Philadelphia. Moved there to plant Risen Hope Church to the north, like as to the south here. In Upper Darby, PA, it's a community where there are 80 plus languages spoken in the high school. Diversity has now become a humbling and happy way of life, though hard for us. I now pastor a church that's three years old. It consists of about 200 adults, 
100 of which are people of color. And our congregation celebrates 20 to 30 different ethnicities. Sitting in the pews each Sunday are various shades of humanity. Every pew is multicultural. Sitting in these pews are people who are on the opposite ends of the political spectrum. Some who support our president and others who understandably are afraid of and worried about and indignant toward our president and these folks are worshiping from the same pew each week. I need to say to you that I am much more the novice than I am anything else here and to pretend anything other than that would be naive, it would be arrogant, it would be insulting. I, I don't have any pretense or presumption. I, I just deeply, deeply feel my need. In the scripture text that I read a moment ago, I would, I would love to spend time talking about what that text tells us about Jesus. Because if at the end of the day we are going to be anything other than moralists and guilt mongers, it must be everything about Jesus. Jesus is the one who loves us and it's because of Jesus and his redeeming work and reconciling work and because of his righteousness that, that God's justice has been satisfied in our behalf so that we could go free and be justified in his sight. And if you take that out of the equation, we've got nothing. So I would love to, to stand here and talk about Jesus, the king of justice and the king of mercy. Uh, for he alone is our hope. Time doesn't allow for that. So let me just get to this. Two questions. How do we know what justice is? And how do we show what justice is? Justice must be known and justice must be shown. So how do we know what justice is? Well, we can arrive at a definition of justice by noticing a few things in the text that I read a minute ago. Justice is a term in that text that includes all the kinds of good deeds and acts of kindness and decency and care and healing that Jesus did. In fact, in verses 15 and following, it says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And then it says just a little bit later, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles until, verse 20, he brings justice to victory. If you connect the dots in that text, Jesus healing and his deeds of mercy and his kindness and his love together with his preaching were all a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that when the Messiah arrived, he would be proclaiming justice. 
and bringing that justice to victory. That means that at least in some sense, feeding the hungry and deeds of mercy and acts of healing and doing good and rescuing human life from danger all fall under the category of justice Biblically speaking, justice is doing the right and necessary things for the right people in the right way to the right degree because it is right. It is treating people in keeping with what is fair and equitable without partiality or favoritism or bias or prejudice. It is giving to all what is their due, due respect, due process, due love, due attention, due protection, due care, do dignity, do everything. If we notice in the text that justice, if in fact it is justice, needs to be extended to all peoples and ethnicities. That's what the word Gentiles means in that text. That word Gentiles translates the Greek word ethnos. It's talking about ethnicities. Verse 18, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, to all the ethnicities, to all the ethnic, linguistic, cultural peoples of the earth. And I love, I love what Isaiah adds in Isaiah 42. He, speaking of the Messiah, will not grow faint or discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. He will not grow faint or discouraged until justice is established everywhere. King Jesus will not rest until justice happens fully and forever for all ethnicities everywhere on the planet. He will not rest until every wrong has been made right. He will not rest until everyone gets their due. He will not rest until justice happens for all peoples. He is no respecter of persons. Justice does not play favorites toward the white over the black or toward the black over the white, over the brown, over the blue, over the rich, over the poor, over the old, over the young. Justice doesn't play favorites. Justice gives to each one what is due. How do you know what is due? Back in the text in verses 11 and 12, Jesus shows us how to know. He said to them, which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? You see, Jesus links his call to mercy his call to goodness and his call to justice to the surpassing value of each human being. He is declaring how God looks at us and measures our worth. Worth and value matter. I am reminded of our recent Christmas season, if you're like me, with a Christmas tree, there are certain ornaments that are a dime a dozen, and then there are ornaments that are priceless. Some ornaments, like those shiny red, gold, and green ones that are boxed in 12s, 
from the Dollar General store. They're added to a tree simply to fill space, simply to reflect a little bit of the lights. If they break, nobody sheds a tear. Drop one of those and you grab a broom. You sweep it into oblivion. You don't even give so much as a sigh. But then there are other ornaments, which if they were to break, would break your heart. On our tree, there is one ornament that cannot be priced, it cannot be replaced. It's a little bird cut out of brown construction paper hung on the tree with a red piece of yarn. The value of this ornament is traced to the one who made it, to my bride of 41 years, Galene, who made it when she was five years old. I assure you, I give that ornament special care. I, I do not touch it. I do not handle it. I do not think about it. I do not put it away except with gentle affection, except with tender respect. You see, it gets, it gets treated extra well. We treat things extra well when they have extra value. Which leads to this conclusion, and this would be a summary of where I think our hearts need to be. How much we value people determines how well we will treat them. How much we value people determines how well we will treat them, and justice is treating all people in keeping with their true value as measured by God. How much we value people determines how well we will treat them, and justice is treating all people in keeping with their true value as measured by God. So on what basis do we know people's true value as measured by God. Well, can I suggest, and this is really review at this point in this day, but let me, let me suggest three ways we can know how each and every human being is valued by God. Number one, each is made in the image of God. Each is made in the image of God. Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. We are made, every one of us is made in the image of God. It speaks of high dignity and beauty. You never, ever, ever, when you're looking into the eyes or face of another human, you never look at somebody who is ugly, someone who is, who is meaningless, someone who is is worthless. Every single time you look into another person's eyes, you are looking into the eyes of a reflection of God. That is an image bearer of God. It means it is inherent in us as human beings, whoever we are, whatever culture or color or circumstance of life, there are no superiors or inferiors. There are no, there are no lessers or greaters, no inherently worse or betters, no lowers or hires, no preferables or deplorables, no princes or peasants, no nobles or ignobles, no first class or second class or third class, just equals just equals. Whatever difference there may be 
in terms of culture and background. We are of equal value because we're made in the image of God. Secondly, each is redeemed with precious blood. This was referenced over the last couple of talks wonderfully, and even the text, Ephesians 2, where it says that we have been brought near. We, the both of us talking about Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles being all of those who aren't Jews, all the ethnicities of the world, that, that we have been reconciled the two into one new man, one new humanity in place of the two, in place of the division. And how has it happened? It has happened. We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're reminded in Ephesians that the cost for our reconciliation was nothing less than the precious blood of Jesus. I'm not just saying here, folks, that we have been reconciled. I'm calling attention to the cost that was paid to get us reconciled. Precious blood. Blood of infinite worth and immeasurable value. Precious blood that washes away all of our sins. Precious blood that cancels all of our debt. Precious blood that satisfies all the angry demands of God's law. Precious blood that appeases the just anger of a holy God. Precious blood that reconciles us all to God through the cross. That precious blood tells us not of our worthiness, for none of us is worthy, but tells us of our worth and our value. If you would ask God, Lord God of heaven, how much do you love all of these multicolored and cultured human creatures? He would say, I gave my son for them all. If you ask the Lord God of heaven, how much are these human creatures worth to you? He will say, because I love them all so much. I have ransomed them at the price of the precious blood of my son. Lord God of heaven, how much are you willing to pay for these human creatures to become your cherished possession? He will say, I gave up the dearest treasure I had for them. If you ask, Lord God of heaven, to what lengths and heights and depths will you go to redeem these human creatures that they might be yours forever? He will say, I left the heights of heaven and in my son I plummeted to the depths of earth and into the abyss of darkness itself to seek them and find them and buy them back from the bondage to which they were enslaved. If you were to say, Lord God of heaven, where can we look to see this love so amazing and so divine, he'll say, look to Calvary. Look to Calvary and there survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died and see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? We are all made, each of us, in the image of God. We have each been redeemed with precious blood. And we are each destined for immortal splendor. We are each destined for immortal splendor. We're destined for glory. I'm astonished when I read Romans 2 that he will render to us Glory and honor. Glory and honor. 
Brothers and sisters, if that doesn't stun you and stagger you, if, if that doesn't fill you with astonishment, you're not paying attention. You have taken your afternoon nap. He is destining us for glory. And the practical value of that, brothers and sisters, in the context of racial conciliation and reconciliation and peace is that when we look at each other and talk with each other, we are looking and talking with people who one day are going to be robed in majesty and beauty and glory. Do you not think we ought to treat each other carefully? and respectfully and reverently. C.S. Lewis, don't agree with him on everything, but I love what he says about this. There are no ordinary people, he writes. You've never met or talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind. And it is, in fact, the merriest kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. You have never met a mere mortal. Everyone you've ever met is destined for everlasting splendor or, tragically, immortal horror. Not only is this true of individuals, but it's true of cultures. I, too, love the book of Revelation and what it teaches us about the end game. Uh, Revelation 21, at the end, listen to these words, John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations, the ethnos, walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it, into the new Jerusalem, the glory and the honor of the nations. I believe that is a promise of a multicultural, rather an omnicultural eternity. The glory of the kings and nations that they will bring into the new Jerusalem is the glory, I believe, and the splendor of the cultures of all peoples. All the ethnicities are going to bring their very best and their very most beautiful into glory, into heaven. Justo Gonzalez writes in his book, For the Healing of the Nations, according to John's vision, out of these many nations and tribes and peoples and languages, God will build a kingdom which all have, in which all have royal and priestly honor. According to that vision, a great multitude from all different nations and cultures will jointly sing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. According to that vision, our music and our worship must be multicultural, not simply because our society is multicultural, but because the future from which God is calling us is multicultural. 
We must be multicultural, not just so that those from other cultures may feel at home among us, but also so that we may feel at home in God's future. We must be multicultural because like John of Patmos, our eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord because we know and we believe that on that great waking up morning when the stars begin to fall, when we gather at the river where angel feet have trod, we shall all from all nations and tribes and peoples and languages, we shall all sing to the Lord Almighty without ceasing, holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down our golden crown before the glassy sea. We shall all sing, and we're going to sing it in our own style, and we're going to sing it out of our own culture and experience. Oh, Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. All this is the basis upon which we can understand how God values us. Each is made in the image of God, each is redeemed with precious blood. Each is destined for immortal splendor. How much we value people de determines how well we will treat them. And justice is treating all people in keeping with their true value as measured by God. So how do we show justice? Justice known must be justice shown. Well, in Matthew 12, justice is shown in that those who are hungry are fed, those that are weak and poor and guilty are shown mercy, those that are sick are cared for and healed, those that fall into a pit of danger are rescued, those that are ethnically or economically outsiders, Gentiles, we will reach out and receive them, those that are bruised and wounded will not be broken or burdened. Those that are in despair will be given hope. In other words, justice cannot stay silent or passive or theoretical. When others are being mistreated and untreated, justice has to step in, speak and act in such a way that each is treated in keeping with their true value as measured by God. As a church, as God began to make it clear to us wonderfully that his intent for Risen Hope Church just outside of Philadelphia was to establish a work that would be truly multicultural, it, it meant that we had some serious, humble work to do. Um, we had to change how we thought about things, how we styled things, how we built, how we developed leadership, and we had to do a lot of talking and listening. In the course of these last two or three years, I've developed what I call my 8L approach to ethnic justice and wholeness, and I've noted subsequently that some of these are found in other places. Uh, Maybe I stole them from them without realizing it. I'm not sure, but listen, here are my eight L's and I'm just gonna give these quick. Number one, listen, listen. For it is in silence and attentiveness that insight is gained and relationships are formed. This needs to happen individually and congregationally in our church 
There are 10 times a year when we have what we call grace and race conversations where 90 to 100 folks will get together and just talk about the challenges and issues and burdens that each are facing. We urge and plead with our people to do table fellowship as we have heard about a number of times today because we need to listen. Second, learn. For there is far more that I don't know than that I do know. And true understanding comes to those who assume humbly that they don't know it yet or have it yet. Listen, learn. Three, love. For at the end of the day, robust, biblically defined love, love for those for whom Christ died, love tenaciously practiced is the greatest virtue, the strongest bond, the sweetest joy, the last, the best, the only hope for a reconciled new humanity in the church. Number four is linger, for wholeness cannot be hurried, and the cancer that has taken centuries to develop will not be healed in a moment. Too many old white guys like me want a quick fix. not going to happen. We need to linger. Number five, lament. For this process, when engaged humbly, will lead to mournful sorrow. First, for others' sufferings, and then for our sins. First, for the sorrows that others have had to endure, and second, for the role that our, that my own ignorance and prejudice and pride and that of my father and forefather's generation, the role that prejudice and pride have played in the sufferings of others. We will need to weep with those who weep and bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ and lament over our own sins and how they've added to the burdens of others. Number six, laugh is the laughter of friendship and mutual joy. For the end of all this is not mere toleration, but mutual celebration, a, a joyful, merry, whole-souled, laughing embrace of all that we are in all of our diversity for all of eternity. Not laughter at each other, but with each other, the kind of laughter that friends and brothers and sisters have on the other side of listening and learning and loving and lingering and lamenting. Seven, leverage, leverage. For all of this must call us to give voice and action to our convictions, to leverage God-given position, power, and privilege for the good of others in order to counter in word and deed the personal and systemic injustices being done in our world, to leverage in order to seek justice and mercy for all. And finally, to last, to last. The glorious end of reconciliation, justice, and love requires endurance of readiness to last. At the end of the day, love must never fail or it is not love at all. Justice and peace are not achieved by short bursts of energy or by passing flights of oratory or by an appearance on a stage. 
These goals are not achieved simply by deciding to show up. They demand that we stay, that we stay. How much we value people determines how well we will treat them. And justice is treating all people in keeping with their true value as measured by God. It is an indisputable reality that in human relationships across the lines that normally divide, relational distance leads to mutual ignorance, leads to cold indifference, leads to growing intolerance, leads to actual abhorrence, leads to violent belligerence. But if, with authentic respect, with mutual respect and love and justice and commitment, we choose to listen, learn, love, linger, lament, laugh, leverage, and last we can be sure that a new and a better humanity will emerge from the church, which is the body and bride of Christ, his beloved, for whom he came and lived and died and lives again. That we might be his, that we might be each other's forever. May God help us so to live for his glory. Thanks for listening and hearing God's word. And as Tim taught those truths and led in some ways to live out those truths, um, I just want to take some time right now to um, encourage you to think about some ways to respond to this. And we'll take some time after that as well to transition to communion. Um, I think for all of us, uh, we have contact points with those that are not of our culture, um, be they African-American or some other ethnicity. Um, and I would just encourage you with those that are around you, take some of these steps, these eight L steps. Um, and it just starts with listening. Um, that's actually one of the things I'm planning to do. Uh, I have a fellow pastor in the city, um, Kenneth Young, and he's African-American, godly man, and I want to get time with him. And the thing I want to do in getting with him is not to try to figure out how to navigate all this or to tell him how he ought to navigate it, but just to listen and learn how this godly man has experienced life uh, as an African-American in a, in a culture that has not been always an, uh, a just culture and often unjust. I just want to listen. And so I think we all have points of contact where we can just listen, and that's a first step. I think these other L's are, are just things that we can do to lean in and to learn and to leverage, find ways that we can act. Um, and, but I think it's just going to happen on a relational level with those around you. Uh, so you don't need to write your senator. That might be a thing to do. Um, but I'd say first, uh, write your friend. Talk to your friend. Listen and learn. Um, there might be some steps to take, though, with your friends. There might be some steps to take with your neighbors. There might be some steps to take with how you communicate and what you say on social media about this as you learn. Um, 
Again, this is about following Jesus. This is not about a political agenda on the left or the right. It's what the Bible calls us to. And so the Lord will give us opportunities. So let's take a moment, um, and actually maybe if the band could come back at this point and prepare for the next song, but uh, let's just take a moment to pray. Say, Lord, where can I take a step? Is there somebody I can talk to or learn from? Is there some way that I have fallen short in just what I've assumed about what their experience is or how well I'm following Jesus in this area? So let's just take a minute to be before the Lord to pray, uh, and then we'll transition to communion.